Well, Chris, I almost lost my wallet this weekend. Oh, no, like out and about in town, downtown Seattle? No, thankfully not. Actually, this was out in the woods of Issaquah. Are you kidding me? I've been out in the woods this weekend, so we're both out in the woods. What happened? Yeah, right. It's a it's a, a lovely Pacific Northwest day, although actually it was it was kind of soggy but misty in <laughs> yeah. the woods in the rain. And all right, the dogs had suckered me into taking them out for an adventure in the woods. Here I am having a great time getting very damp, taking some pictures too. And that's where things went awry. I get back to oh. the car. You know, I was going to go to the store, pick up a few things, do some errands on the way back home after the walk. And I notice I don't have my wallet. So, of course, I checked the car. Maybe I left it in there, although I tried to take it with me on hikes. And I think to myself, well, I wasn't planning to do this. You know, really, I looked at the small dog, and she killed to me with those cute eyes. And I thought, all right, all right, I better take him to the woods today. <laughs> so it was plausible that maybe, maybe I just left the wallet at home. I'd never brought it at all. Right. So you realize before you make it home that you've lost the wallet, but you're, oh, you've left the woods at this point. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, okay. totally. I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, no. what do I do? I don't have my wallet. I don't know that I lost it. So I drive home. I search the car again. Then I search the apartment not there. Oh, no. By this time, you know, it's like Sunday getting to be evening. We're at, a you know, quite the, quite the latitude up here, so it's getting dark early. I basically have just enough time. I think to myself, is this really worth it? Is this what I'm going to do? But I get back in the car. I drive back to the trailhead, and then I jog the entire route that I went on with the dogs looking for this wallet, and I find it. So actually, I go right past it. I go right past it. I'm getting kind of depressed. I'm like, what am I going to do when I get back to the car? Like, I need to buy stuff. I don't have that much gas left in my car since I just drove back to the trail. Oh, man. And I remember that I took a picture at this spot. And I think to myself, I have my wallet and my cell phone in the same pocket. And I back up to where I, where I think I snapped the picture, look to the right, and just there, under some ferns and some leaves, is my slightly soggier wallet. Oh, wow. And it must have been just as it was getting, I mean, you must have been close to running out of daylight. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was probably like 10 minutes to sunset. <laughs> my Ooh. my story is not as awesome, but I got I got this new mobile router, this new fancy schmancy mobile router. And um, I brought it down to the studio and I got it set up and I got it all updated and I packed it all up and I took it back to the RV, which I had strategically stashed out in the woods on the edge of Signal. And I'm so proud of myself because I've got this whole thing and I'm going to plug it in and I'm going to have, you know, totally usable cell signal out in the woods. And look at me, I'm such a fancy boy. And I get it out. I, I run the Ethernet cable to it. I get ready to shut down my Raspberry Pi that had been doing the job of this thing. And I realized I had left the power cord at the studio. No. <laughs> yes. And so I seriously, and it's, it's more than an hour drive away. And I seriously sat there for a solid 45 minutes debating if I was going to drive my butt back to the studio just for that power cord. But ultimately, I decided just to call it a night and have a chill night in the woods. Hello, friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru, the leader in hands-on learning. The only way to learn a new skill is by doing. That's why ACG provides hands-on labs for cloud Linux servers and much more. Get your hands cloudy at a cloudguru.com. Welcome into 377. We have a great show. Fedora 33 is out this week, and Wes and I have been really putting it through its paces, so we'll tell you our thoughts on that. But we also have some really good community news. Just some stuff. Well, maybe not all of it's so good, but stuff we're definitely going to chew on. So there's a whole batch of stuff. I apologize if it smells like pine trees and skunk. Wes and I have been out in the woods. Uh, also, Wes, I apologize I set up the soda stream in your spot. 
But it was it was on sale for Prime Day. I had to get a soda stream. And I just can't compete with that carbonation. <laughs> no, no, I like I like seven squirts, Wes. I like it really bubbly. So that's why it's right there. So if I uh, if I have any burps, I apologize. But before we get into that community news and those burps, I want to say time appropriate greetings to that mumble room. Hello, virtual lug. Hello, 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 everybody. It's really great to have you in there. Uh, rocking twenty two. We've been we've been averaging a little higher some weeks and around twenty two some weeks. And it ebbs and flows, you know? People have stuff going on in their life. It's been getting cold. Well, that's for sure. Out in the woods, way below freezing. So, yeah, let me tell you, it's nice to be down here in the studio where it's warm and cozy. And let's start by talking about Linux 5.10. No, it's not out yet, but it's shaping up to be a, a pretty impressive release. There's a couple of things that are worth noting, and why we're talking about it today is it's been confirmed by Greg KH that this will be the next LTS kernel, which speculation had been that it would be Linux 5.9. But no, my friends, it is going to be 5.10, which may be a nice thing. Yeah, right. He, uh, Greg KH announced this at Linux Foundation's Open Source Summit Europe. And I guess really we're talking about it because once it's released stably, perhaps around mid-December, it's going to be a kernel that hangs around for a long time with that LTS support. So you, I, all of us will probably be running it for years to come. Yeah, and Android devices in particular, and sometimes when it when it is a kernel adopted by Android, I, it wouldn't be uncommon to see that ex, that support extended out further than just a few years. Um, I think the other notable thing about five ten has to be the the Bluetooth bug that we've recently heard about. It sounds like the complete fix for that vulnerability is going to be when you have both the Blue Z update and a kernel update that corresponds with that, and that particular fix is in 5.10. So that's, it's good to have that, but there's also just a, a plethora of new hardware features and improvement support that's in 5.10 as well. The current LTS release, just if you're curious, is Linux 5.4, and that is expected to be maintained through the end of 2025. So uh, when you have 5.10 out there, you're probably going to at least see it maintained until the end of 2026. So go build your servers, your uh, your LTS distros and your uh, enterprise distros and your Android phones. Hey, that means we can look forward to 5.10 on our little uh, garage arch server sometime soon. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully that takes a little while. Oh, that'll be a dicey upgrade. Stay tuned, audience. Also in 5.10, just a side note, um, XFS is making the long play. with uh, In 5.10, XFS has been updated with, with what they call uh, big... Timestamps, which means it will it will now support timestamps out until twenty four eighty six. So they're uh, they're going to be around for a long time. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So previously we were counting things in seconds since nineteen seventy, as maybe you well know. That runs out in twenty thirty eight. Seems like a long time, but eighteen years? Eh, maybe not really. But now we got huge sixty four bit nanosecond counters. Oh yeah. Finally, finally. So there's your long term storage. Or ZFS or ButterFS. <laughs> Just not NTFS. Do me a favor. Uh, System76 in the news this week also with Pop! OS 2010. It came out at the end of last week. There seems to be a lot of improvements that take advantage of like GNOME Shell 3.38 and uh, the underlying updates in Ubuntu 2010. But there's also something landing in Pop! Shell that caught my eye and it's called stacking. Similar to tabs in a web browser, you can stack tiled windows on top of one another. So you can imagine maybe a a multi, they have actually a really good video that demonstrates this, but you can imagine a multi-tiled uh, window and maybe you have a long vertical pane on the left-hand side. Well, you could have your web browser there, your notes, you could have multiple applications there, and then you can toggle through them with Vim shortcuts or whatnot. 
it sure just keeps getting better and better. Another one that caught my eye are floating window exceptions, because sometimes you just have those little weird dialog boxes that are just too small to really tile efficiently. And now you can just add that to the exceptions list, and uh, they're totally exempt from tiling. You don't have to fuss with turning it off and on. My use case for that, so it'll be interesting to see if I can do this, is bookmarklets for tagging things for various shows. Mm -hmm. Those windows always get tiled, and it scrunches everything up for just this tiny little pop-up where I tag something and give it a title and hit enter. I wonder if there's, but it's spawned by the web browser. So I wonder if I'll be able to do that. I wonder if I'll be able to, you know, accept that. We'll see. Oh, if I didn't mention to the chat room, as we're going along, do bang suggest and title our show because uh, we that's how we're going to title this thing. If you don't do it. We can't be trusted. No, no. So please do help us title it. Um, but I want to talk about a story that is really unfortunate. And we covered it in LAN, a lot of the details about this. And it is uh, the DMCA takedown of YouTube DL, which has been removed from GitHub after a DMCA notice. There's been some developments since Linux Action News, uh, including some alternative repos and an interview with one of the original creators. So I, I wanted to stop for a moment. If you're not familiar with the story, um, the Recording, uh, Recording Association of America, or Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, issued a Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown on YouTube DL under the grounds that it could be used to pirate music videos off of YouTube. And it is kind of, it's it's a bit of a spacious argument, but I'll tell you where they're coming from on their point. Um, because, you know, we want to give you the both sides of it here. So in most cases, the DMCA notices are regarding unauthorized distribution of a piece of media. That's typically how a DMCA takedown is done. You're, you're distributing copyright copyrighted music or copyrighted video. And then they will use the DMCA uh, takedown request that these platforms support. It's a you know, it's like a tool often that YouTuber build or GitHub builds. They'll use that mechanism to use the DMCA as the grounds to take down that copyright. But this notice for YouTube DL is different because it's targeting a tool that can be used to reproduce copyrighted media. YouTube DL is licensed under the unlicensed license, which is an anti-copyright license that promises ownership of the software to the public domain. And it is usually considered lawful to freely distribute the software itself because of that license. The notice claimed that YouTube DL software was being used to copy a couple of songs that they cited, um, particularly songs that were like a Taylor Swift song and, and whatnot that were in the documentation. Yeah, some of the examples are Taylor Swift, Icona Pop, and of course, Justin Timberlake. Maybe those aren't the best examples to have. <laughs> but at the same time, you're right. Like, are we now policing if you violate some other services, you know, terms of service? If you violate the JB website terms of service, not, not that we have those, I don't think we could get GitHub to take your code down. Right. Take the entire project down. And of course, it's still widely available. It's still widely used. Um, last year, the RIAA was able to get five YouTube Ripper sites, you know, sites you could get, you put the little URL in there, uh, got them removed from the Google search engine. So what's, what's one of the new developments with this story since Linux Action News came out is uh, Perchant News interviewed Philip, I'm going to say Hagemeister, Hagester. Um, <laughs> he's the previous maintainer, Philip is. And this is an interesting bit in the interview that I want to call our attention to is I think there's a broader action that's happening here. And the RIAA takedown may only be 
a function of that broader action. Because uh, Philip says he received a cease and desist letter from German lawyers just a couple of weeks ago, but notes that there's a ton of technical inaccuracies in the letter. Uh, they don't seem to understand that, he, for one, he's no longer the maintainer, <laughs> but he can't say a lot about it because it's an ongoing issue. Perth Chat News also asked, you know, despite not being the maintainer anymore, would he change those examples? I would remove the test cases, he writes. These videos were never fully downloaded anyways. They're just automated test cases where the test downloaded the first 10 kilobytes, which amounts to a couple of seconds at most. And this is certainly fair use, but the project is fully functional without those test cases. How about that? It was only downloading the first 10 kilobytes. I think that's a bit that's been overlooked. And these are just test case examples. They're not, uh, they're not like advocating it, but it would have been so much better to point to some Creative Commons content on YouTube instead of instead of a music video. That just in retrospect seems ridiculous. But I want to say this because I think this issue has been a little misunderstood, particularly in, in some of the Linux uh, journalism slash media space. But YouTube DL is a tool that maybe is not properly named. YouTube is one of many sites that this tool supports downloading from, hundreds of hundreds of sites. And it is a tool that this podcast uses to give voice to open source developers to tens of thousands of listeners. All these events that get posted online that we clip up, that process starts with YouTube DL. And that is absolutely 100% fair use under the DMCA. I use the YouTube DL to back up news clips for fair use in my unfiltered podcast every single day, every day. And I'm, I, I pay YouTube a monthly subscription for premium to just have the privilege of not seeing ads. So ads aren't really a factor for me, but I don't think this conversation should be about the tool's ability to copy a Taylor Swift song or the tool's ability to download YouTube videos without seeing ads. Because that conversation about ad blockers is a much larger discussion, and YouTube DL is is really not alone in this space. And that's a broader conversation. And the ability to download videos from YouTube, functionality-wise, I think it's an important tool to back up a very relevant medium right now that is culturally more relevant than I think we've seen any cable platform or television platform because it is a publishing platform for the people and the ability to back that up, especially in an era when more and more is being controlled and what you're allowed to watch and not allowed to watch or the fact that things can be taken down by the creators themselves after the fact, having a tool that allows you to archive that is pretty important. And we have to remember this is free software. So you can't just squash this one group of people and, and claim victory because a dozen more will fork and sprout. So we have to think about it in a broader way, too. You know, it also makes me think it's an important sort of statement about browser lock-in. If, if, you, if you're acknowledging that you can go to YouTube and watch this video freely, well, why can't I use the very same sort of API calls to interact in the same way, right? I, I don't want to get to this future where YouTube is totally locked in DRM and you can only access it on your iPhone app. This is a tricky thing here because um, I, I don't know if this is a fair analogy to make, but I can see a future where there is U.S. federally mandated encryption backdoors that are built into products that are capable of encryption. And I could see a similar process where uh, application Y, messenger application Y, doesn't support backdoor, and so therefore it's a security risk, and it's you know there's some process where they issue a takedown on GitHub because it doesn't comply with U.S. law. It becomes a real gray area real quick because what we have here is a recording industry association that is using music copyright law to take down open source code on a platform owned by Microsoft, 
right? That's the real big picture here. And I think this is a horrible precedent that we're seeing. The takedown functionality, it seems like it's useful. Like we looked into it and there's, there's legitimate known open source projects on GitHub that issue takedowns under DMCA against projects that are maybe copying brand or something like that. So the takedown process itself seems like it has some legitimacy. But how the RIAA is using it here really reminds me of how they've abused YouTube as well. But now it's source code, and it matters a hell of a lot more than cat videos. Well, yeah, I need to download and archive those cat videos, Chris. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I and I see as a... As someone who's just out in the woods, man, everything I watched recently was offline. And for me, it's kind of a nice thing because I can kind of download and curate several videos from the creators that I really enjoy. And I kind of set them aside. And, you know, we make dinner and I have them all loaded locally. And it's, it's an, it's a thing. And it, it deeply connects me to those content creators. And the fact that I could use YouTube DL to facilitate that is critical in my relationship and my continued consumption of that content creator's media. Or maybe you're using a, a low-power device that just doesn't play well, this full-screen video in your browser, and you want to just play it on the command line with something that has hardware acceleration. I'm curious if the Mumble Room has any thoughts on this particular takedown. Um, I think we probably nobody would disagree that they should probably consider a name change. It just seems, and you can see it in the, the project the project's uh, social media communications, they they initially assumed it was Google that knocked them offline because they just live in fear of Google constantly. <laughs> and then they realized after they read it that it was the RIAA. <laughs> you wouldn't expect it. Co-what? You guys are still around? Yeah, right? Like, what is this, Napster you're enforcing here? And Microsoft, I think, should try to own this. You know, they can distance themselves by saying this is GitHub, but the reality is that when you got when you bought GitHub, like you get both ends of that relationship. <laughs> yes, right. And that's that's kind of the the funny part here too. Is it's you know, there's been sort of a lot of jokes or mocking or sarcasm around the well, it's on GitHub, but it's also Git. So in one sense, you can't kill it because well, it's Git. It's distributed inherently. But the other side is that there's still this problem of the of the defaults, and right now. GitHub is king. That's the place where development takes place. That's the place where, you know, issues, discussions, documentation, the place people go. And it's a little tricky when it's a giant lawyered up industry association versus a little humble open source project. Really? Yeah. Bidebit, and you have thoughts about this. So I had to laugh about uh, DMCA, uh, about someone made a pull request towards it and uh, an empty one. And he did it uh, at uh, such a way where he made it an empty one that via that pull request, you can eventually still pull the entire uh, YouTube downloader uh, project uh, because it's available through Git. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, they have their own local copies too. The developers are saying, you know, we have, we have recent local copies. We can obviously host it in other places. And I can't tell if there is a similar thing we're seeing happening here where you have, you, I, I feel like we have this issue where it's almost going to become a matter of survival that you're on your own self-hosted infrastructure if you're a project that is skirting the legalities here. If you're in the gray area and maybe you're not going to enforce an encryption backdoor or if you are a project like YouTube DL, you have to maybe consider that you're better off from day one on your own infrastructure and just training your user base. That's where you go to find us. And I know it, you know, you kind of, you suffer a little bit from the social network effect of GitHub. And you also have to be comfortable enough with, uh, you know, get the admin side of things, have the time and the resources to yeah. be able to stand that infrastructure up and maintain it. 
Yeah, and maybe that's an area as a community we can keep improving. I mean, it is getting easier and easier than ever to stand up infrastructure. So there is that aspect of it. It is getting, it's been, it's so much simpler today than it was a long time ago that uh, maybe that's changing. But I wonder, I wonder, I, I've, you know, I've, I've never really taken Mastodon seriously until recently. And now I kind of go, okay, I kind of get it. Long term, maybe it is better to invest in owning the infrastructure like that. And, um, for an open source project, something like GitHub is just an absolute vital part of the infrastructure for the project. And when you think of it holistically, you think maybe we should really be in charge of that, um, even if that means asking for some funding or something to make it possible. And I know there's people out in the community, I know it, that there's people out in the community that would volunteer to help them build that infrastructure. I know that's true because anytime, anytime we have an ask about infrastructure, the community steps up immediately. And I know YouTube DL is probably probably got a lot of very passionate fans out there that'll be willing to help it so we'll see I, I think this is something i feel like there's a bigger there's a bigger trend happening here i'm curious bitmux on what your thoughts are on the network effect versus self-hosting and having the freedom of of being in control of your own platform that's exactly that um you, you have to you have to make a choice if you're going to take advantage of the network effect which is probably one of the strongest forces in today's world uh in development and creation of anything, uh, you're going to gravitate towards one of the major corporate supported platforms. And right now it's interesting. You have like a lot of binary systems. You have Microsoft or Apple, you have uh, Amazon or Google. When it comes to GitHub, you have GitHub or what? You end up choosing. Do you want the the freedom of self-hosting it and uh, all of the responsibility that comes along with that? Or do you want the advantages and the network effect and not having the responsibility of self-hosting of uh, just throw it on GitHub and and invite all your your developer friends to uh, have a go at it? Yeah. And you maybe even get more contributors potentially, which also has a lot of net benefits for the project. Uh, so that has to be a calculus too. Neil, you and I have done an extra on GitHub alternatives. I'm sure you must have thoughts on this. There are avenues around this. And I think some of the things going on with the Fediverse with um, ForgeFed, which is a, a, a protocol in development to support, you know, cross server um, interactions and subscriptions and things like that to essentially build a decentralized federated network um, across Git servers. You know, that, that sort of thing I think will help and, you know, Pagger, as I talked about with you in, a, in an extra show um, several months ago, you know, the, there's a contributor who is actually being who's got funded effort to build an extension for Pagger specifically to support that model. And Pagger itself has features built in to support things like, you know, people are forking the project or maintaining their own clones in their own Git servers. They can still make branches and send pull requests to the master repo on on another Pagger server. And Pagger itself doesn't even require the other server to be using Pagger. It could just be a plain Git repo on HTTPS or, you know, a C Git or whatever. And as long as the Git URL works and you can clone with it and the branch is accessible, it can pull it and then you can make a remote pull request with that. And so what I think we need to move towards for projects is to consider that we shouldn't repeat the mistake that we, well, we did repeat the mistake we made with SourceForge with GitHub. We should try to learn from that and, and start diversifying. I kind of feel like it's not just source code hosting. It's communications with the options of Matrix and Discord and Slack and Mattermost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's social media platforms with Mastodon versus Twitter. It's PeerTube versus YouTube. And I don't, maybe versus isn't the right uh, way to put it, but 
we there is a common theme here amongst all of it, and it is, and and I I find myself as time goes on again and again, like with as I have perspective on things, I I look back and go, yeah, it's clear, uh, you know that platform was it was like a limited ride, and eventually you knew that ride was going to come to an end, and I see YouTube is very much that, and social media is very much that, and long term to be serious about it you should probably own that infrastructure yourself and that's that was really what inspired me to to go hard into matrix uh but the onboarding has been an issue where the commercial apps like discord have really nailed that and it's just a challenge it's again the network effect but also think about this the reason why the onboarding is so poor is because there isn't there isn't the drive and interest the you know the network effect to push people into improving this. Like the only reason that uh, that these solutions tend to have weaker user experiences is that they have weaker levels of investment. And that's because there's a weaker network effect because there are people pre- uh, preferring solutions that already are there and, and things like that. And again, it's not necessarily, you know, always a bad thing to do that. Like I am on Twitter and Mastodon. I, I prefer Twitter for the discoverability. But on the flip side, if it's something that I... I essentially care for and have to really depend on, I really strongly consider the self-hosting avenue simply so that I have confidence that I don't lose my data. Like I lost all of the stuff I did for Google Plus years ago. Uh, and, you know, I recently spun up a, a personal Pagger instance for my own usage. It's, you know, I locked it down so nobody else can log in or do anything. But like, it's useful for me for doing issue tracking, workflow management, and storing mirrors of repos and things like that. And and so I'm doing that for my own personal usage. And, you know, things like Pagger or even like, uh, uh, you know, Git or whatever, like they're easy to set up. They have easy documentation. The requirements are low. I'm running my Pagger instance on one vCPU and with one gigabyte of RAM and OpenSUSE Leap 15.2 on Linode for basically nothing. Yeah. And it's and it's fine. It performs very well. Yep. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, you should consider because I think people think that the administrative efforts are not worth it or oversized compared to what they actually might be relative to all the other work that they have to do. And it's true that there's like the security stuff, but you know, at some point you've got to, you've got to pull the trigger and start really thinking about your project in that, in a, in a manner where it's long-term accessible. Yep. I agree. So we'll be keeping an eye on what happens with YouTube DL and I'll be thinking, I think we all will think about this more. And if the audience has additional thoughts, on this on this overall trend that we seem to be seeing across a lot of different mediums, uh, I'd love to hear it. LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact. This seems like a great moment to thank Linode for sponsoring the program. Linode.com slash unplugged. Receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. I've been using them for just over two years, and I was really impressed with how straightforward it is to spin up infrastructure. And, you know, we were talking about how projects have easier and easier access to this. Linode is a great example of this. I started using it for myself personally, but then when it went when it was time for Jupiter Broadcasting to go independent, we just built out our infrastructure on Linode. But they started in 2003. They're one of the first companies in cloud computing three years before AWS. And they're independently owned, so you know I love that. And they're founded on a love for Linux. And it shows. And I've got a great example for you. They already have Fedora 33 up and ready to go. It released... It released just like a day ago. Like it's already up on Linode. How great is that? And it really shows. They, they embrace a lot of great open source technologies to make their really awesome cloud dashboard possible. They also support Linux and open source initiatives. 
They, they're supporters of the Kubuntu project. They've backed Linux Fest Northwest, which I am super grateful for. And now they're backing this show as we go independent. I mean, you get it, right? They're really, they're really into the community. You combine that with the fact that Linode's really just going to make it possible for anything you want to run on Linux to just run really great in the cloud. And if you need something for your personal website so you can host a portfolio or maybe you want a static website that's crazy fast and you just take advantage of Linode's object storage, they're going to make that really approachable for you. I mean, really, if you don't have a site for like your name and a portfolio so when people search you, it's probably worth it. Because otherwise, something else will take that space. So that's something to consider. If you're looking for a job, I, I think that's probably something you should definitely do. And they start at like $5 a month. And you can build something on there that's just crazy fast. And when people are looking at you for a technical job. That reflects really well on you. I have absolutely 100% checked out how candidates have built their website before when I'm checking them out. So that's something to consider as well. So go to linode.com slash unplugged. Sign up with a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. That's a really great deal. If it's meant to run on Linux, you can run it on Linode, and you can run it really good. And every single plan comes with their amazing human-powered customer support. It's really legit. So check them out, linode.com slash unplugged. Thank you to everybody who goes there just to support the show to let them know you heard about it here or takes advantage of that offer, a $100 60-day credit on a new account, linode.com slash unplugged. A couple of uh, more items for us to address. I thought this was really fascinating that 1Password is now out in beta for Linux. And there's a lot of options in this space already for Linux users. Bitwarden's a popular one. Of course, we've covered it plenty on the show. LastPass is a longtime contender on the Linux desktop. And 1Password kind of comes along at a time where there's already a lot of options, but they, they seem to be really going in with... With full steam, they've built a an app that's written with a backend in in Rust, which you know we love. They're proud to use also the, as they say, incredible Ring crypto library to power end to end encryption to keep your data safe. It looks pretty legit. Now, before you get too excited, it's important to remember that this is still a beta. So expect some sharp turns and sudden drops as you test this out. Really, this should be used for testing and validation. And if you want a quote-unquote stable experience on Linux, for now, you should use the browser version. Which, I'll tell you, Chris, that's what I've been doing. Uh, my new day job, well, turns out they're using 1Password. I'd only experienced the web stuff. I had no idea this was being planned. So I'm pretty happy about this. And I've already got the beta installed this morning. I think 1Password should be a sponsor on this podcast. I'm going to say it right up front because I really like 1Password. Uh, I think they have the best UI, um, and this, this is what the company makes, right? This They're not like part of a larger conglomerate. Like, this is what they do, and um, they they have a bunch of corporate users because they have they over the last year or two, they've done a ton of deals with businesses where businesses just roll out 1Password for all their users. It's, I've, been, I've been there and done that. Um, and the other thing they're doing is kind of an introduction, which I think shows maybe some insight into the community. They say, if you work on an open source team that needs a password manager, open a pull request in our 1Password open source project repo, and we'll give you and everyone on your team a free account. <laughs> I think they get it. Well, maybe another sign of that is uh, they're maintaining signed, apt, and RPM package repositories for Debian, Ubuntu, CentOS, Fedora, and Red Hat Enterprise Linux, as well as the Snap Store. Plus, if that's not enough for you, there's an app image. Although, so far, nothing on FlatHub. Now, for yourself at home, you know, listener at home, 
I think you could really consider looking at something like Bitwarden, especially the Bitwarden Rust server that you can run yourself. I think that's something you should definitely consider. Uh, there's KeyPass as well that people like for local password management. But the reason why I think this is noteworthy and why we elected to include it in the show is this kind of is reminiscent of Active Directory getting added to Ubuntu and having it in Fedora. It's, it's a way for Linux to plug in with Enterprise. Or the teams come into Linux, right? Kind of the same thing. Like, you you don't get to pick these tools. They're chosen for you. And um, that's kind of what decides if you can use your favorite desktop or not. Yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah, don't worry, Wes. Yes, it is. It is in the AUR. Yeah. As, uh, I was worried. <laughs> yeah, I know you were concerned about that. Uh, I haven't given it a go myself, but um, I guess so. You've tried it, Wes? Yeah. Is it like an Electron app sitting on top of a Rust backend, or is it actually a true native desktop Linux app? Oh, you know, I didn't get that far. I just actually tried it out for its features and, uh, you know, oh. was trying to sync up with my existing vaults. That's a good question. It's hard to tell from the screenshot. I can't really, and I suppose it's fine as long as it's not too resource intensive. You didn't seem to have any performance uh, concerns, it sounds like. No, started up real fast and uh, away we went. They say it's this new look they're working on. It has auto- automatic dark mode selection based on your GTK theme. It also supports opening network locations like SSH and SMB and FTP locations. And it will unlock your Linux user account, including biometrics. No way. That's amazing. What? No, I got to look into that. All right, I got to try this. I got to try this. That is one thing I think that's exciting is, you know, um, just looking at various password managers over the over the years, seems like people really like one password just for their sort of response. Uh, very actively developed features, bug fixes all go out in a timely manner. And here, yeah, right. It seems like they're not they're not trying to half ass this Linux support. It's not just throwing us a bone. It seems like they really want to make it a platform that they're yeah. they're willing to support. X11 clipboard integration and clearing also a feature in there for autofilling passwords. I got to try this. If you try this and you like it and you buy something, you tell them Linux Unplugged sent you that they should sponsor this show. Because <laughs> I think this is great. I really do like seeing like big, well, not big, but um, independent commercial apps like this that have really found a niche and gone after it. That's I'm, I really, I, re- I really do like that about them. So there you go. I, I guess uh, I was on the fence, but then re- I, reading that they claim you can unlock with your Linux user account, including biometrics, I, I got to see that integration. And then the X, X11 clipboard integration, I'm on Wayland presently, but I, I got to try that too. That, that that sounds like some sort of Mac fancy magic right there, and I, I, I'm just not believing it until I see it. does look like there's some Electron happening here, so surely some of this is written in Rust, and then they're leveraging you know all the handy UI elements that Electron provides. But, you know, easy install. I, I just added the app repo to give that a shot, but I like that they have an app image. That seems nice, especially for a machine that maybe I'm just using for work. I wonder what the memory usage is on that there, uh, on that there app. You got any... Uh... You got any data on how much that uh, that sucker is uh, taken down? I mean, I kind of like that the important bits are written in Rust, and then the UI bits are written written in Electron. I can understand why they're doing that with multi-platform support, but yeah, not too surprising. No, not not nothing much. Not really showing up on my radar here. All right, very good. Well then, Wes, we have a few items. I know people have been skipping the housekeeping because I just saw someone in the chat room who didn't know Unfilter was back. So don't be skipping the housekeeping. You know, it's politicals here in the states. It's politicals right now. Uh, and I'm going to be live streaming the election, which is like coming at us like a freight train off the rails, like next week at unfilter.show slash live. If you want to watch that train wreck, I mean, you'll just be you'll just be streaming nonstop, right? That's what I assumed. Uh, yeah, probably for weeks. No, I'm just going to be there for the night. I'll make a few predictions on the stream. You know, we'll do that kind of stuff. We'll do live commentary. It's really about 
having a social outlet to commiserate this together. I'll be there with you. But you know, maybe maybe you'd rather do the Linux thing. I want to remind you that we do have the Luplug every Sunday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. You can uh, see it on our calendar. Just get the Mumble Client installed. We have info for that on our website. And then you connect to the lobby. And I think we have kind of a special plan again, another theme for the Luplug. Indeed we do. So you might remember that we had two weeks ago, we had a talk about browsers and that was pretty, pretty interesting discussion. So the idea is now to continue with some kind of topic every two or three weeks. And next Sunday will be a topic about uh, keyboard shortcuts, mouse gestures, mouse button configuration and stuff like that. I will prepare a little talk about how I configure my input devices and maybe some of you want to tell us how they configure their keyboard and mouse. So if you are interested into that topic, we would love to see you in the lobby in Mumble for our Loblock next Sunday. And there is something really special. We might try to record that session too. Aha, look at you guys getting fancy. Very good. Also a reminder, if you want to be a pro JB listener, we do have the all shows feed. You can upgrade to the all Jupiter Broadcasting shows feed by searching in your podcatcher of choice, or there's a link at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And be sure to stay to the uh, post show because we will get a weather update with Brent in the post show. So you want to stick around for that. But moving right along, extremely excited to say that Fedora 33 is officially here. It's Linux distro Release week, like um, like last week we had Ubuntu 2010. This week we got Fedora 33. It's like release week parties, like all around. It's the release season. I'm almost just real hung over at this point, but there's enough in 33 here that it, it kind of makes me excited to talk about it. Wes and I uh, went clean slate after last week's episode. We went hard into 33, and I kind of just went all, all deep. Um. I think we'll start with what's new because there's some major standout things in this release that we've been looking forward to and talking about for weeks. Uh, Obviously, number one headline here is this is the Fedora that ships to ButterFS as default when you install it. The default file system now is ButterFS and perhaps a reason to consider reinstalling this time if you're so interested. But seeing ButterFS finally ship in in a major Linux distribution I think is extremely exciting. I think it's gotten to the point where it's a really solid workstation and VPS and laptop file system. And that's exactly what they've done here. In the workstation versions of Fedora, it's ButterFS. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of had our own little ButterFS journey of late. And okay, maybe things get more complicated if you're building out your giant next NAS solution. But I think you hit it right on the head there. Do you want a modern file system that's that's maintained, that works well and has a lot of nice features? Well, ButterFS is it, and having it used by Fedora, used by the folks, the the great people using Fedora, all all of the folks that that means, that's just more people testing it in all kinds of configurations and settings and environments. That's just going to make everything better. Yeah, and the reality is more and more people are on SSDs. Well, ButterFS is the file system that has optimizations for that. Uh, data compression with modern disks and modern CPUs can provide lots of not just storage benefits, but performance benefits. Data integrity, copy on write, snapshots, being able to send a file system over the network 
it really is a competitive file system, and uh, I think it's great to see it land in Fedora as the default. I think it's, I think it's a very yes. bold move. I think it's, I think it's equally as bold in many ways as Canonical deciding to ship ZFS. But while that is fantastic, what I what is really exciting about this is not only is it the default on your root, but this is a this is a free file system. I mean, this is clear and free, totally integrated into the Linux kernel, so it is truly just a baked in file system that feels like it's part of Linux. Yes, right. No weirdness with module loading or, you know, strange situations you have to debug because it just doesn't feel like it's part of the system. No DKMS concerns, right? It's just in there and you get all those features and like I've I've just really really found it to be a great file system for my home file servers. But I'll tell you a little quick story is I recently went over to Angela's house to help her with her file server, which is a Synology, I think. A Synology disk station if I'm getting my I'm not sure. But it's the one that uses ButterFS on the file system. And she's having some problems connecting to it. And I figured, well, this thing is six, seven years old. It's a really old NAS that's ran out inside in a garage, right? It's not kept inside in like a perfectly air-conditioned room either. It's kept out in a garage. And it's been out in that garage for seven years <laughs> with spinning disks. And I, I thought, oh boy, I thought I was coming over to deliver her the bad news that this thing has finally eaten itself because it's a version of ButterFS that is from the, from maybe it's before the five series kernels. I mean, it's from a very long time ago. It's really old. I've done like one or two updates to the OS in its lifetime. So it's got a couple of updates on there, but it's, it's a pretty old version of ButterFS. A couple of updates. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought I, I thought I was going to have to prepare her for the bad news that she had lost her data. And she's not really big on cloud storage. She likes it all local. And I was prepared to like, I was bracing and nothing of the sort. It was just simply an interface issue. Had There was a rogue DHCP server on the network and the NAS for some reason had, had grabbed an IP from that and didn't get its reserved address from the proper DHCP server. And it was really, it was, I, I, when I got back on that NAS and I logged into it and I looked at the file system and every disk was online and everything read as healthy. <sighs> I had a little bit more appreciation for ButterFS right there because that's seven years of kind of neglect but just reliable use and keeping that data safe. And and um, you combine that with GNOME 3.38, and I think what we have here is a magic version of Fedora. 33, that's a magic number. It's pretty impressive with just these two things alone. Nothing else really combined in the mix. It is a close to upstream version with a couple of small uh, Fedora takes on it. Maybe my favorite is they've done a clever thing with the background where I'll kind of transition several times during the day to um, to a different uh, lightning and color. I actually don't particularly like any of the default Fedora experience, the, the theming, the background, any of that. So I uh, I can't really sit here and tell you that it is... It's going to be the slickest, best GNOME shell implementation you're going to find, but it is one of the purest, which you can very quickly build on top of. And if you are the type of Linux user who is okay doing a little bit of that work, a little legwork, not a lot, probably two hours of legwork if you're familiar with the processes, maybe not even, you can really hone it in. Because I kind of like starting with a close to blank slate and just tweaking the things in GNOME shell that I want. Minimal extension experience, you know? Well, it gives you a nice sort of idea of what it is like fresh. You know, if you you install a distro that has a lot of customizations, that might be great, but you're never getting to try what that stock experience might be. And you're just lower down the tree. There's less branching off places to try radically different things. 
Well, and when you are installing extensions, it's not a bad idea to kind of do them one at a time and kind of get a sense for it. Here's what <laughs> yeah. Fedora does that I think is tops. So I go to the I go to the GNOME extension site, and of course I'm getting this crap about needing the OS connector installed for the extensions to work. And I, I start thinking to myself, well, for God's sakes, Fedora doesn't have that installed. So I, I go to DNF install it, and it says it's already installed. And I sit here and I scratch my chin for a second, and I go, hang on. I seem to recall that they put these in the repo, in some sense, whatever that is. And many of the GNOME Shell extensions that I use are in the repo. So I don't actually have to go to the extension site. And they get updated via DNF with my other packages, which is brilliant. And it's totally the way to manage GNOME Shell extensions in a way that I think works really well and reliably. And again, makes GNOME Shell a little bit more workstation grade because the two are generally getting updated together, if you're lucky. And I, I think that's way better than going to a website and having to remember to go update your extensions from time to time. Because it turns out I never do that. No. So I'm curious to know uh, what your kind of early impressions were of Fedora 33 and where you ended up with it. Oh, I've actually been having um, a lot of fun. You know, I'd been enjoying GNOME 338 already, uh, just having played with it the past couple of weeks since it's been out. But you're right, there's something really fresh about Fedora. It was nice to spend a little time before I really got the system invested with all of my default applications and just sort of using Firefox, using default GNOME, exploring the system. And I'm still enjoying, I installed it rather a few times, which I'll get into later. But it was really nice to just go through the, the, the GNOME welcome experience. And I'm just kind of impressed with how, for a distribution that tests and integrates all of this great upstream open source software, I'm getting to be really impressed with how integrated and its own Fedora feels. It doesn't feel like just a grab bag of good open source projects. It feels like a, a thoughtful, crafted distribution. Yeah, I really agree with that. It really does. Uh, from the way the software updates are handled and the firmware updates to installing the extensions to all of that. But additionally, it's not so it's not so buttoned down that you can't make it your own pretty quickly if if that's your thing. I I admittedly um, just went and got the pop theme. I got the pop icons. I got the pop GTK theme. I got the uh, uh, yeah the auto tiling extension. Oh, did <laughs> so, you? I was yeah. thinking about that. What was the experience like? Because I didn't get down that road all the way. I mean, it's great. System seventy six just puts it all up on GitHub. So um, they uh, and now and now Carl has made it even easier to install in Fedora thirty three. Yes, sir. I packaged up uh, the pop shell extension. It's available as GNOME shell extension pop shell with hyphens in between, and you can just DNF install it and start using it. Yeah, so I pulled it off GitHub and built it because they put the instructions and it's really easy to do that, but there was some TypeScript updates that had to be done. I mean, there was some shenanigans, so Carl just packaged it all up, makes it even easier, and I, I'm a big fan of the look. Um, I, think it makes, I think it makes a really great theme on Fedora 33. Not to mention with, the, with that extension, there's quite a few of their shortcuts that conflict with default GNOME shortcuts, and I have that all handled with G-Schema overrides in the package that You'd have to figure out those conflicts yourself if you were manually installing it. That's great. That's so great. So I did, you know, I had to do it the hard way, but now you could do it the easy way. Um, and that sort of started to complete my experience. I was impressed too that um, my the flat packs I installed they seemed to launch fast and adopt the theme that I'm using, which I'm really grateful for. So all that just worked really well. And uh, I was on a pure Wayland session because I'm doing this all on Intel hardware, and I found performance to be exceptional. And it's noticeable now that I can do things that I couldn't do in Wayland. My monitor management is sticking, which is a huge win for me. If you guys have listened to this show for a while, you know I've really struggled with my two verticals and a center monitor setup. 
Uh, it has been a non-issue using a Thunderbolt dock hooked up to a laptop running Fedora 33 on Wayland. It has worked. Hallelujah. And additionally, uh, on, I, I have found that performance has been even better than I've, I got on X. Like, videos don't tear. Games are playing just fine, even though they're X Wayland. It's, it's really good, even with multi-monitors, which I was concerned about. I was concerned about a performance hit with Wayland and multiple monitors, but it is not so far uh, bared out. And uh, I'll say lastly, I can tell the functionality has really gotten there. I can take screenshots of various applications and then I can copy and paste them into other applications and all of that is working. There's a couple like Shutter, there's a couple apps that I used to use that don't work with Wayland, but for the most part, if you use the built-in tools, it's brilliant now, Wes, and they all look really good. It's almost to the point, I mean, okay, yes, there's all kinds of weird little niche cases if you're pushing things, but it feels like it's to the point where I, I kind of forgot that I was using Wayland and not X. At least, you know, for my, for especially, especially for like my use case of just using it for work as, as an actual workstation, not as a streaming or a test machine. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll add this into the mix too. Um, Fedora 33 is the uh, first distro to pioneer Nano as one of the default text editors as far as I'm aware, and I think that's a groundbreaking feature right there. Oh, you uh, would. And so Nano, uh, by doing so, makes uh, Fedora accessible to humans and now clearly is an easy distribution to recommend to beginners because Nano. Also, uh, those of you on the Plasma side of Fedora will be getting early out-of-memory manager that was shipped last version but was on the GNOME side of the thing, of the of the distro, I guess. And now it's on the Plasma side of the distro if you get the Plasma spin. So that's kind of nice. And you also get swap on ZRAM by default now, which should help with performance as well. Yeah, I noticed that. Isn't that fancy? Yeah. There's one notable other addition to the Fedora family now in 33, right? And that's Fedora IoT is now an official addition. So that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun if you're out there potentially building something that could be in this ecosystem. It's now a actual official addition, which I think is which is fantastic. But here's my here's my final sell on Fedora 33. And this is where I think it, it is is really nailing it right now. If you are uh, using Arch, by the way, if you're an Arch user and maybe it hasn't been just quite perfect. If you're a happy Arch user and you've, you're loving it and you have no concerns at all, I'm not talking to you. But if you're an Arch user and maybe you got bit once or twice or you're concerned about it. A little more rocky than, than rolly. Yeah. Perhaps you should give Fedora a serious thought because it sits in this real nice nexus of – Close to upstream, like Arches, really fresh packages, like you're going to get new kernel versions during the lifespan of Fedora. It's really easy to jump over to even the Rawhide version if you like, but just with the current version, you're going to stay pretty fresh. But major user land changes, like changing your version of Plasma or, or Gnome Shell, those are done at official versions, like 33. And you can plan for that, and you can essentially rely in, in a world where your extensions come from your repo and your a lot of your applications are coming from FlatHub and Flatpaks, you would be surprised at the success rate you'll have at doing upgrades even relatively soon around release. It, it really is rock solid. And so what you have here is a distribution maintained by a major player in the space. You have a fairly frequently updated base with a stable user land that gets updated to the latest and greatest at every major release with a package management system that makes it really practical to actually do all of this. It's not hard to maintain. You don't, you don't have to be on this rocky roller coaster 
of a ride, but you still get that really sweet nexus of fresh software, well-supported, upstream, and a wide variety of packages to choose from, industry support, and also a growing community. I mean, there's a lot of positives here. Yeah. I'm not trying to convince anybody to switch off of their beloved distro, but if this sounds like this appeals to you, I think Fedora 33 could be a serious contender for you. I can still have my Colonel Hipster dreams. <laughs> Fedora 33 gets the stamp of approval from Linux Unplugged. I'm really loving it. I had I had to make it my own to get it there. Uh, but I, I have no problem doing that. But it's worth that little bit of investment, I think. Yeah, okay, maybe it comes comes a little a little raw, unconfigured perhaps, but it's just built on such a solid foundation. And you're right, you don't, you're no longer waiting for software to become available. Pretty much everything just works. You can go grab whatever you need. feels like you can get, finally, and this has been true for the past few releases, really, but it, it's this happy marriage of, okay, well, there's probably an RPM that works if you need that, and, of course, a million other ways to get your software and you get all the great systems and architecture work that the Fedora team, you know, brings in and, and makes the new future of Linux. I think one of the things that's really changed for Fedora, from Chris' reviews of the past where I really struggled with Fedora, like in the in the teens, in, the, in their early 20s of Fedora releases, is you didn't have uh, mechanisms like Copper and FlatHub. And so when you add in the rather expansive now repositories of Fedora to begin with, then you add in FlatHub and you add in Copper, you can pretty much get anything you want. <laughs> An app image, of course, and Snap's available as well. You could just install a Snap on Fedora. There's nothing stopping you. So there's there's really the software availability has has kind of gone by the wayside. And, and the kernel maturity and the desktop environment maturity is just always a default win for Fedora. So, you know, while we get here, when Ubuntu comes out first, we'll often go through the list of features in 5.8, and we'll go through the list of features in GNOME Shell. Of course, Fedora has all those as well. So it's a very compelling release. And I think it's, for now, um, a, a easy recommend. And you also get a chance to play with ButterFS, which, Wes, you, you put in the dock, and I missed it earlier. You have a crazy way to run ButterFS from RAM? Yeah, well, so so this is nice. You know, I like to uh, test out distros sometimes, yeah. run them straight from RAM, and 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 exec in there just as I get to play with, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like the benefits of a virtual machine where it has a whole disk. I can try out the default automatic partitioning and see what happens there. But I can also just blow it away and, and try again if I want to do things differently. What's nice about having ButterFS installed there is I can kind of make it work a little nicer in a hybrid approach because I've got everything on ButterFS and I actually just sort of changed my setup to put to put boot on ButterFS too because I'm I'm a madman like that. But what that meant is I here's my OS running in RAM. ButterFS has these awesome copy and write snapshots though. So I take a snapshot send that snapshot back to disk as a backup, right? So in case my computer breaks or, you know, of course, these things that I run on RAM, they're on a UPS, all those normal things. But in the event of a power failure or, or kernel panic or whatever, think that off. And then anytime I do updates or, or system changes on the system partition, all I have to do is take advantage of that snapshot diff and only send the diff, and I can keep a nice on-disk backup that I don't ever actually run, but if I need to, I can take that, restore it back into memory, and have a full, fast RAM disk system ready to go. You know, you are just a few short tricks away from a like a bulletproof segment here of, I, I'm already seeing it now, Wes Payne's run your whole system from RAM safely segment, and then uh, for just extra fun, we'll say do it as root the entire time as well. Because <laughs> why not? Coming up on a future episode of Linux Unplugged, <laughs> Wes loses all his files. 
I want to say thank you to our Unplugged Core contributors, unpluggedcore.com. You're helping keep Linux Unplugged independent, and that is appreciated not just by your humble host here, but by the listeners of this podcast. It's a it's a crew of you out there that make that possible, and you also help reduce the ad load needed, and we can be a little pickier about who we choose to make the show profitable. You also get some perks. When you become a core contributor, you get access to two feeds, your choice. Well, I, I, you, I shouldn't say that because you could actually – you could actually do both if you're a maniac, but feed one is a limited ad version of the show. Same full production. Joe's touches on there, just limited ads. The ones we're contractually obligated are in there, but we, uh, going forward with sponsors, we, we set them up and we, we kind of divvy it all up so that way the, the, uh, shows can be limited in ads for that feed. And that means if you're not a big fan of the ads, uh, you get the same great production quality just without those. Uh, but there is feed two. Oh boy. Now, this is nothing like feed one. Feed two is a mess. <laughs> it's horrible. I wouldn't listen to it. I encourage you never download feed two. Um, I kid, but it's the full live stream, which means anytime we have a screw up or, uh, you know, a pause in the show or anything that's a blemish, it, it's still in there. If we, you know, caught something that we would technically have pulled because maybe we said something that's inaccurate, we would cut it. But that, it's all in there, all the scripts, full transparency, but you also get with that a lot more show. You get all the stuff that maybe gets cut because we didn't have time, but you get the pre-show, which is generally quite a bit of show, and you get the post-show that is a lot more than whatever gets released in the public version. So it's, there's some perks to feed to, and if you got a long commute, it's pretty great for you. And it's just a way of saying thank you for supporting the show. Unpluggedcore.com. You can become a core contributor of this here podcast. Keep us going, keep us independent, and you get a few perks. Emails coming into the show. Uh, Francis writes, hi, in the last episode of Linux Unplugged 376, you had someone on from System76 to talk about the Thaleo Mega. As much as I'm a fan of both System76 and Linux Unplugged, I have issues with not disclosing the fact that System76 sponsors one of your other shows, uh, which is Linux Action News. He says, I know that you have interviewed people from System76 previously, and I don't think those interviews were appropriate, but I feel that there's at least a perceived conflict of interest. It just made me uncomfortable listening to the interview with you not first putting a disclaimer about your business relationship with System76. Uh, thanks for your understanding. Love the shows. Francis. Yeah, I knew when I talked about Pop 2, it's like it's awkward because they do sponsor LAN. Uh, they don't sponsor this show. And uh, I haven't offered this show to System76 because, um, well, I I am not really concerned about it c- uh, impacting what I would comment on. I am concerned uh, about the perception of it. Uh, and so if we talk about something in this show, it's because we want to talk about it. Nobody nobody asks us to talk about it. It's, it's, our, it's our choice and our decision. And I have had a uh, – you guys, if you listen to the show, I mean, I've had no problem <laughs> holding back. Like, I went all in on criticism for pop. Uh, when it came out. And you, the thing about System76 and I, and really JB as a whole, is our relationship spans like 13 years now, almost. Uh, I was literally one of their first public customers. So it's kind of beyond, it's, it's beyond, um, it's beyond like one ad deal. So one ad deal doesn't really influence what I say or don't say. Uh, it doesn't hold back my criticism. That's just how I roll. That's one of the benefits of me being independent. But I totally get the perception and the concern of conflict there. And so what I always do is if they're an active sponsor in that show, I disclose it. If it's something like that would be like, say there was some sort of paid promotion 
uh, a paid thing like that, I would 100% always disclose it. Uh, if you don't hear me disclose it, my general default is because just because we chose to do it. I asked to have her on. I wanted to know about it. I think System76 is extremely interesting from a Linux ecosystem perspective because they have been around for so long. They've been through their Unity years, the transition to GNOME. Now they're making their own products more and more. And uh, I, I think it's a really interesting just bellwether in general for the Linux desktop, for Linux in business, Linux in education. So they're, to me, they're a fascinating subject to follow on that level. Uh, but because they are so relevant, I also feel like they do make for a great sponsor because they fit in that nexus of interest with our audience, a company I know well and believe in, which means I've vetted them extremely thoroughly. And they have, they have um, a legitimate message to get out that I think is, you know, it's a good product. So they really, they sit in that kind of sweet spot there. Um, but we will, uh, as we begin picking on sponsors and stuff like that, because, you know, this is kind of new again for us, we will try to be really receptive to this kind of feedback because uh, it's, you know, I want to get it right for you guys. And I've got no reason not to be fully upfront with you. So this is something we will try to learn from and try to make sure we get right. And if somebody has some sort of like business relationship with us that could be, that could be perceived as influencing, we'll try to disclose it. I I kind of started playing with that when we talked about pop because I knew there was like there's something there about it, mm-hmm. but I, I don't really have like the words for it yet. It's like yeah, they sponsor Linux Action News, but my thoughts about pop are are still my own. But uh, so I don't know how to cover it. But it's something we're thinking about. And Francis, I appreciate that kind of feedback. Wes, do you have like thoughts on? I don't know, lessons learned, what we could do differently? No, I mean, I think you're right. It is a little bit of a a strange bundle in that they are a little closer than maybe some other sponsors or relationships in that you've been a customer, you know, we've gone to events with them, we we see them a lot and and know a lot of the folks personally. But you are right that I think we try to keep things separate. And Francis has a great point that um, even if, if we feel these ways internally, it can only help to make that more transparent or as transparent as we can be. That, yes, you know, we, we know these folks. Kind of goes with a lot of the projects where, especially over the years, you know, you reporting on them, following them, sending emails asking for, hey, can you clarify these things? You just develop these relationships. And it's important to, um, you know, make sure the audience knows that, yes, you have those, but you're still going to say whatever you want. Yeah, and I think I really, I, I gained more respect for them too when I... Uh... <laughs> When I really shit on Pop OS. <laughs> and they, you know, they didn't like, uh, I'm sure they didn't like it. Constructive criticism? Yeah, like, it, yeah. And I admit that I was wrong. I think it's actually pretty great. And here, here I am running the Pop theme now on Fedora. Uh, Kat writes in, uh, hi, Chris and Wes. Why don't we as a community acknowledge the freaking amazing level of technical support we get with our software for free? <laughs> this week I had a great displeasure to contact a certain commercial vendor about a technical issue in their product, which we paid a lot of money to use. I couldn't get in touch with any qualified personnel who could actually understand the problem we were having, less let alone fix it, and had to give up and debug the issue myself. Oh, I guess we're not spending enough millions to be able to have a direct lifeline to whoever is actually writing the product. This got me thinking about the level of support we've seen on the Linux kernel mailing list and so many other places so many times. It's very easy to get in touch directly with the developers and who are generally relatively eager to help. And he has an example. He says, uh, some guy posted about a hard drive which crapped itself and totally broke and broke <laughs> His ButterFS file system. Okay. And he says uh, that the ButterFS developer and ASUSA employee actually responded in a few hours by writing a custom recovery tool specifically for this individual's problem. Isn't that just great, he says? 
if this were a commercial project, you'd have to shell out millions each year to be able to have that kind of support. And it's more of the norm than it is the exception. He says, by the way, uh, you have listeners even in remote places like Central Asia. Love the show. Keep it up. That is that is such a great point and one that I think can also contribute to developer burnout, but it is such a level of transparency. It's one of the reasons I think Wes and I like covering this space is because you can actually go to the mailing list. And a lot of times for a lot of the things we talk about, especially with Linux Action News, we just email them. Yeah, right. There's there's no secrets. The development's happening out in the open. The discussion is often out in the open and... Yeah, once you're once you're pushing these these commits out there, it's not that big of a leap to actually just start conversing with folks. Oh man, Marty writes in with some feedback that I was just thinking about on the drive in from the woods today about how I want to set up a local AD um, Active Directory server, and I want to try getting an Ubuntu box and a Fedora thirty three box to both plug into it. I think that'd be pretty cool. So Marty writes, I was listening to episode three seventy six, and you mentioned Active Directory support in Ubuntu twenty ten and the forthcoming Fedora thirty three. I'm a small time Fedora developer, but I run several different Linux distros, have for a long time, and I run free IPA in my home lab. Uh, and it's remarkably easy to set up. The best thing about it is that uh, it's available for my clients, and it's uh, there's clients in all the major Linux distros as well. Single sign-on reality is here. Free IPA uses the underlying bits of 389 for LDAP, MIT KRB5 for Kerberos, and DogTag for certs. It's ridiculously simple to get up and running and get clients joined to it. It's very convenient. It also bundles in an LDAP-enabled bind, which allows clients and servers to both get their own Kerberos-secured DNS updates and do dynamic addressing. That's pretty great. He says, I even do domain replication pretty easily in free IPA. I run a multi-master on my home lab. I think it'd be really worthwhile for you to check it out. Well, I think that dang, seals the deal. I think that puts it on the project list right there. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Love the feedback. LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact. Anything we've talked about or anything you think we should talk about. If you want to get something in front of us, that's where you go. And last but not least this week, we have a pick for you that's rather topical. And it's called... Annie, the fast and simple and clean video downloader. And you gave it a go this morning, Wes. I sure did. You know, it's written in Go, um, pluses and minuses, depending on what you think there. But it did mean that there was a simple little static binary I could go download and run. Hey, that's pretty convenient if you don't want to go install things somehow else. Although, there are downsides. But it was super easy to get started. And honestly, it had some really nice output. You know, it just, it used the terminal display really well, great integrated progress bars, and as much as I love me some YouTube DL, there's kind of a lot going on when it's printing all this information, and Annie felt um, just a little bit cleaner. Yep. I think that the, the flip side here is Annie's definitely younger and not nearly as full-featured as YouTube DL. I mean, if you've ever looked at the YouTube DL man page or the just the long help options, it can do just about everything. Annie, it's a little more bare bones. Yeah, I, do, I agree with you, though. I, t- I gave it a spin. I do like the output. It's going to require you have FFmpeg installed, but I, I'm guessing you already have that. And it's quick. I think it, it, it launches and downloads faster. Yeah, you know, also it integrates with a tool um, I tend to use sometimes for downloading things, uh, ARIA 2. Now, if you go that route, you do have to merge the resulting multi-part files yourself. But hey, FFmpeg's there anyway. That's right. Yep. It's a thing of beauty. So uh, if you're jonesing for a YouTube DL alternative, and YouTube is the primary use case, which actually isn't for me, uh, check out 
Annie will have a link in the show notes. It's hosted up on GitHub for now. <laughs> Jeez. Also, I encourage you to join us live next week. Uh, join our mumble room, join our chat room, or just stream along over at jblive.tv. We do this noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. And of course, there is that virtual log happening on Sunday. You get your Mumble client set up for that, and then you might as well come by Tuesday. Don't miss it. And uh, go try out Fedora 33. Let us know how it went. Don't forget, you can also join our Telegram group if you want to join the conversation after the show. That's at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. People are chatting in there 24-7, and it gets pretty geeky. So go get that. The show is at Linux Unplugged. At Linux Unplugged on Twitter, the network's at Jupiter Signal. I'm at Chris LAS. And check out Wes Payne now on Linux Action News. Woo! Woo! Yeah! Woo! Coming up in your feeds. See you back here next Tuesday! Brent is here with the report. Brent, is it snowing in Canada? Yes, today in the weather, it might be cold for some of us outside, but it's always warm here in the Jupiter Broadcasting Mumble Room. There you go. There you go. If you do get cold, you can snuggle up close to Brent. Works great. Thank you for the update. You're welcome. Back to you. 